0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Allison Coten, an interaction designer at EPAM Continuum. We're here today to talk about a deep, multisensorial longing that we all share, as identified by Jeff Schnapp. He's the Carle Pesca Solido Professor of Romance Languages and Literatures, and of Comparative Literature Faculty at Harvard, the Chief Visionary Officer at Piaggio Fast Forward, Founder and Faculty Director of MetaLab at Harvard, and Faculty Co-Director of Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. As the rigors of pandemic life began to lift, we're emerging cautiously, like shipwrecked mariners after a storm, blinking to see what remains of our world, ourselves, and the formerly familiar connections between the two. In a landscape where video conferencing has made time zones irrelevant, boundaries between the physical and virtual disorienting and blurry, and human connection physically and emotionally perilous, we find the business of work and learning has changed too, sometimes in ways that fulfill intellectual cravings we never even knew we had. And so we sharpen our awakened senses to explore this mixed-up new world, not to rush to put it back the way it was. Schnapp tells producer Ken Gordon we can't just drop content into new containers and leave it unchanged. As our circumstances and our technology have made scholarship more democratic, traditional keepers of knowledge have had to learn to talk to new audiences—in fact, to become better students themselves. In Schnapp's professional world, where robotics intersect with urban planning and centuries-old literary texts yield modern design challenges, what students at all levels crave is connection, a through-line of meaning that spans disciplines and time periods. Academia and business both have something to learn about how our future rests on interdisciplinarity. Not just in what we know, but how we think, talk to each other, and solve problems. According to Schnapp, that future may already be here.
1: Jeff, welcome to the Residence Test. We're so glad to have you uh, here today.
0: Uh, My pleasure, Ken.
1: We've got so many things to talk about, and uh, I'm really excited because you have such um, a varied CV and have so many interests that I really think that there there are a lot of cool things we can reach on that are not your average Podcast gets can get to, so I, I'm I'm super jazzed to have you here. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. Let's begin with, let, let's begin with with uh, something we talk about a lot at our organization: interoperability. In some ways, to me, your career is is kind of a study in what, what we might call professional interoperability. You're a polyglot. You study and teach Italian literature. The internet design, urbanism, mobility, politics, and probably about 16 or 17 other things, which I I, I haven't listed yet. Um, you remind me of something that George Steiner once said, which is that cows have fields, but passion and motion are the privilege of the human mind. And I, and I feel like this is really something you have been building a career on, really, the uh, the ability to move between languages and disciplines. It's really been a, a core to what you do. And what I want to know is what Business might learn from your example when thinking about interoperability as a, as as something like a design or engineering challenge. What more can we say about interoperability from your experience?
2: Well, it's a it's a great question and a great quote from George Steiner, who is a literary historian I greatly admire. And um, um, I, I think uh, the first thing that, that I would say is uh, that in terms of my own professional path, there were, there was never really a plan to move so kind of transversely across so many different domains. Um, and, um, and, uh, but there, what, what there was, which I think directly intersects with the way that you've posed the question uh, were a, ser- a set of passions for a series of domains that are some, sometimes loosely interconnected, sometimes not. Um, and I, um, Uh, They were accompanied by a willingness to do a deep dive in some of those domains and put others on hold. And over the course of my career, many of those items that were placed on hold have come back and rejoined, in a sense, the trajectory that I followed, uh, which might not have seemed like the most linear path, let's say, between a PhD in the field of comparative literature with a focus on high medieval Romance literature, Italian in particular, and uh, certain kinds of computational techniques, or the practice of design or robotics. There's certainly no straight line that runs between those things. But uh, but but viewed in retrospect, uh, there 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 were always many overlapping domains, many threads that connected them. Um, But I think, and this is certainly something I try to practice in my own teaching, particularly on the doctoral level, it's really crucial to have deep roots in a field, to to not be homeless in the disciplinary sense, to to really own a form of knowledge and to bear responsibility for it, if you like. But just as pressing, just as urgent is... uh, a kind of pressure to speak other languages, to take that domain expertise and to make it communicate and interact with other forms of expert knowledge, other languages, uh, whether they're professional or disciplinary. And I do think that a model, whether it's in the business world or whether it's in the academic world or the innovation world in particular, that emphasizes the sort of tension between those two components is almost by definition, the model that yields the best results. Uh, It's not good enough to be a generalist, no matter how attractive that prospect might seem. Um, But if you are only a specialist, and you have the kind of blinders that every domain of specialization brings with it, it's unlikely that you're going to see where the great areas of opportunity uh, lie.
1: Mm, i like that. I like thinking about opportunity area creation in academia. I wonder, did you have to do a lot of education of your colleagues about this? I mean obviously this is something you've developed over the years, but it's not a standard thing in an academic department. I don't think
2: um yeah, I you know it there are many different kind of cultures within the university world. It's certainly the case that it's a world that has favored the development of deep Specialization, you know forms of domain expertise, sometimes increasingly narrow, in part because of the complexity of many research fields. Uh, that said, uh, mm-hmm. there there are other pressures uh, that characterize that environment, and I think they've been growing. I think the transformations that the internet has wrought. Have uh, required even domain experts to, to speak multiple languages to communicate in ways that aren't part of the sort of standard model of how you produce research or how you disseminate it. And it's certainly true mm-hmm. that in some of the research ventures that I have led, the laboratories that I've built first at Stanford and now at, at Harvard, um, there is a certain amount of friction between my model and and those dominant models. Um, but uh, I see that friction is. Subsiding a little bit uh, as the whole culture of the academy shifts towards a model that's more public-facing, I think, than than might have been the case maybe thirty or or, or forty years ago. Um, so, so yes, uh, there there is a there there is maybe a difference, um, but I don't think it's a, a an absolute difference. I think it's a it's a it's a closing gap. And what I often like to say, and this is a bit of a provocation to some of my colleagues at least, that uh, I only like to teach things where I'm the learner in chief,
1: mm, yeah. <laughs> um,
2: which I suppose is the is a motto that falls under the general umbrella of what we were just discussing. Um, part of the adventure for me of being, um, having the privilege of teaching in uh, these great uh, research and teaching institutions that are places like Stanford and Harvard is precisely the opportunity to continuously expand my own horizons intellectually and to collide with other kinds of realities and forms of knowledge and to be forced, in a sense, to become a polyglot in in the deep kind of disciplinary sense, not just the linguistic sense.
1: Let's zoom in on that a little bit. Let's Let's talk for a second about Italian 247, material culture in the Middle Ages. Dante's Commedia, and let's talk about that. It it fascinates me. I am so I just reading about this this class you're teaching about how you kind of fuse close textual study and historical context and design together. It just it it must be an incredibly um, exciting experience for your students. Could you talk about your strategy for creating what you call a set of estranging perspectives uh, for which to revisit key features of the Commedia? Can you can you talk about what you're hoping this, such estrangement will do for the, your students' sort of uh, curiosity and and, and research um, projects ultimately? Certainly.
2: So uh, to, to start out with, uh, 2021 is the 700th anniversary of Dante's death. Uh, sure. So it has been a year in which there have been uh, there has been conference upon conference, uh, celebration upon celebration. Um, and really, in that broader context, one of the questions that a field like the field of uh, Dante studies uh, has to ask itself is: What does that f- the future of that field look like? In the case of Dante studies, really uniquely, uh, uniquely with respect to almost any other major uh, work of the literary imagination, the Divine Comedy. Uh, generated a commentary tradition that begins with Dante's own sons, line-by-line commentaries of uh, the the comedy. uh, And they continue from the 14th century all the way to the present. There are something in the range of uh, three or 400 commentaries of which most are complete uh, from beginning to end. They include a who's who of intellectual figures, uh, including Giovanni Boccaccio, the author of the Decameron, a number of major Renaissance Neoplatonic philosophers, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, one of our national poets, and so on and so forth. So the tradition of Within the field, as you can probably imagine, is a very much a textual, a textualist tradition, very focused on questions of interpretation, on the understanding of particular uh, words or word patterns, symbols, uh, larger structures of the imagination within Dante's vision of the afterlife. What hasn't characterized the field, and that's where this particular course comes in, uh, is a lot of attention to the Physical environment, the circumstances, the everyday life world within which the poem was written, Mm -hmm. and there's a good reason for that. And that reason is that, of course, the record is not rich with details. We don't have a single manuscript that was written by Dante in Dante's own hand. Uh, What we know is fragmentary. It's based on archaeology. It's based on other kinds of textual records, often rather marginal ones compared to the literary tradition that don't we think of Dante as belonging to so the natural bias within the scholarship has always been to look at look for classical sources to to look for the cohesiveness within Dante's own um, own uh, uh, poetic imagination um, and uh, really on the o- occasion of the centenary I wanted to try out a class that I had dreamed of uh <laughs> rather, you know, frequently over the course of several decades. Um, And um, the the pandemic uh, seemed like a strangely appropriate time to do it, in part because given that all of our teaching this year has been online, I thought this is going to be a way too demanding and specialized course to attract a large enough audience within Harvard. What if I run this class and I send out invitations to peer institutions Uh, faculty, collaborators of mine, former or current, and just say, you know, door open policy, if you have graduate students who would be interested in participating in this experience, join us. And so I ran this course uh, as an online course. I had students from not just Harvard, but also Princeton, Columbia, uh, uh, the University of Parma, uh, Oxford, and uh, Cambridge. And uh, and it was really wonderful. We worked essentially through Dante's poem, looking at a series of themes that connect to the physical environment in which the poem was written. Themes like forests, like watercraft, like uh, uh, blood, like uh, doorways, uh, and so on and so forth. And in each of the weeks, we, essentially read the Divine Comedy from the estranging perspective of the actual material aspects of each of these themes. In the case of doorways, um, I had actually, we had a a special guest, uh, uh, Itai Weinrib, who's a a very distinguished medieval art historian talking about the brass fittings that were used as hinge structures on doors and what it meant to hold a key in your hand to, to have access to, Uh, the locking structures that were used, especially on uh, uh, doors that were privileged doors, like church doors. Mm. And similarly, uh, we looked in the case of Watercraft at ferry passings, uh, uh, ferry crossings, um, the figure of the ferryman as a kind of uh, uh, a a sort of... uh, uh, not, not particularly privileged member of medieval society, but one who had a very negative reputation in contemporary chronicles and travel narratives. Um, and the qu- kinds of questions we, we posed for ourselves were to what degree, instead of just imitating classical models, in other words, reprising passages from Virgil, was Dante? expanding upon those classical models on the basis of lived experience or familiarity with aspects of his uh, immediate uh, surroundings. So that was the spirit of the course. It was an experiment, uh, I think quite a successful one that I'd like to carry on beyond this cent- this centenary year. But um, I think what is uh, typical of it and goes back to our earlier uh, exchange is that it is a framing of the question of how to engage with this masterpiece from the late 14th and uh, late 13th and early 14th century uh, that where they're not, are are not concrete answers. They're only hypotheses, Mm -hmm. uh, ideas that you can try out. And uh, for me, this was just as much of a learning experience, even after teaching Dante for 30 plus years, as it, it was for my students, some of whom are, are quite, Uh, quite distinguished uh, young Dante scholars in their own right. So um, being the learner-in-chief, I think, is is an important role, whether it's in the entrepreneurial world or it's in the world of academic research.
1: That's fantastic. And I I have to say, uh, at EPAM Continuum, a lot of our uh, work, a lot of our ethos is about this idea of prototyping and taking hypotheses and building, fabricating some material object. To sort of substantiate the hypothesis, and when I when I read your description of this class, I thought, wow, that really would be the next step is to have these these kids go out there and actually learn how to make a key. You know what I mean? How to actually fabricate some of the material um, uh, environments and the built environments they're learning about, and the idea of really um, embodying this research in a way would be. So- such an incredible final step for that kind of thinking. Not that you necessarily need to do that, but boy, would that be cool.
2: Yeah, well, I, I, I can think of some, ex- some examples, uh, some experiments we did at the Stanford Humanities Lab, which was my first, uh, my first laboratory. Uh, and uh, my, a colleague of mine actually had his students in a history of science course where they were uh, reading uh, Galileo's writings, um, the stories Galileo tells about the discovery of the telescope. Uh, by actually building a telescope yeah. using all of the tools and techniques that are described what they what they set out to prove is actually that Galileo is not giving away the secrets that he's actually concealing the method for constructing the telescope and you can prove it by Trying to replicate the procedures that he describes, <laughs> which actually which actually don't work deliberately because he didn't want others to go around and steal his great
1: discovery. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. All right, let's let's talk about one of the other hats you you wear. You you are the co-director of the uh, Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. I want to ask you a little bit about digital communities, which has been one of the things we've been thinking about um, this year because uh, digital communities. Or maybe in their early early adolescence, but they're they're really beginning to have their offline, um, they, they make themselves felt offline in serious ways. Have, have you seen in your research and or your just experiences over the the past year um, something uh, happening in? online communities that wasn't there before? Have you seen any kind of of maturity or sort of uh, online communities coming into their own in sense of terms of how they can influence lives? We've seen with Wall Street Bets and Black Lives Matter uh, what online communities can do, but it's still young. Really, I think online communities are just starting to recognize that they can organize and influence the world in ways that people have never really done before.
2: Uh, absolutely, I, for me, the the pandemic, however, however challenging it has been on multiple fronts, um, has really been an accelerator and a kind of incubator for some, I think, maturation in the notion of what a commu- an online community means. I, I think we all had the sense that somehow the internet was this world with, that was this platform, if you like, this new public, you know, kind of main square. That was going to give rise to new forms of community, but I think the 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 kind of uh, acceleration process that this uh, the definition of what that space is and how it can be mm-hmm. inflected in different ways has been an important um, learning from the 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 past year year's experience. Um, and the example I just gave a second ago of how one could teach an advanced research seminar. Uh, without observing the, 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 the sort of intramural, extramural uh, boundary line um, uh, for me is, is just one example of the opportunities that, uh, that online communities create for us. There are opportunities that have to do with inter-institutional partnerships, but I think maybe the deeper answer to your question, it has to do with the kind of quality the distinctive ways the, the value-added components of the online versus the face-to-face uh, and particularly I've, I've seen some interesting I don't know the, the beginnings of some some um, sort of deeper thinking about um, you know uh, communication techniques, strategies, rhetoric, modes of presentation, that are increasingly web specific or, you know, zoom specific, whatever your weapon of choice is. Um, and I think (laughs) those are really, those for for my mind are, are, are really interesting. Um, because one of the bigger sort of design questions or communications questions that I'm interested in really pretty much all of my work is where do the value added propositions lie as we move, across different communications channels, and we combine them, which is, I think, the typical defining attribute of how knowledge circulates and is produced today. Um, Instead of just a hybridity where everything, content just gets dumped into one container after another, what Mm -hmm. does an alternate model Mm -hmm. look like where the channel-specific features now are highlighted on one specific channel versus another channel in order to extract that little sort of, you know, if is it 5%, is it 10%, is it 20% or is it more of a value-added proposition that lies in each of those? And I, I would say that a lot of the work that I do in what I like to call knowledge design, which is in uh, a phrase that's used in the description of Metalab, the lab that I run now at Harvard as part of the Berkman Klein Center, um, really has to do with that question of understanding the media-specific properties of different channels, and then understanding how, in the context of a particular project or a particular undertaking, one can leverage those strengths strategically in an appropriate way that adds value along all of them, and rather than just treating them as uh, a series of neutral containers.
1: No, that's really that's that's really good, particularly in the context of higher ed, right? I mean, you guys have have to figure out you can't just use a lazy hybridity to justify the price tag of a of a college um, education now. And exactly. part of that is understanding what face to face is actually worth, what it delivers, what the value is there, and what online is, and how to sort of appropriately do it. Just saying hybrid is insufficient. I think is what you're saying, and I, I
2: exactly that
1: exactly. Hardly. Yeah, cool. exactly. That's, but. but now, now I want to switch. I just want to switch a out because we have so much to talk about, not a lot of time. We have to talk about Jita. We have to talk about your following robot that your company uh, Piaggio Fast Forward has created. Can you talk a little bit about this following robot and your sort of vision for how it will fit into the urban landscape of the future? Well, first of all, tell us what it is, and then let's talk about how it fits into your vision. Uh, okay.
2: So, uh, so gita, which is an Italian word for a pleasure trip, uh, typically a, a, a relatively short trip, a kind of local trip, although it can be a longer distance as well. Uh, gita is a follow me robot. It's a robot that is uh, carries uh, is built around a cargo bay that holds approximately you know two shop two sort of grocery bags can carry up to a little bit over 40 pounds of goods. And um, it uses all of the uh, technologies that we associate with self-driving vehicles or or what are called, you know, level five autonomous vehicles, but Mm -hmm. not in the service of replacing human mobility, but of supporting human mobility, that most fundamental of expressions of human mobility that is walking. Uh, So uh, it's a vehicle, but it's a vehicle that embodies a vision of the future of cities, Um, and that's the vision that uh, really infused Piaggio Fast Forward from the time of its foundation in 2015. Um, As you may, uh, our listeners may know, Piaggio is uh, the word. Piaggio is associated with the Piaggio Group based in Milan, Italy. It's an 136-year-old company. There aren't very many of those around. Uh, They've been in every aspect of the mobility business uh, from uh, outfitting ships to producing railway cars and trams to being one of the leading aircraft manufacturers in Italy between the two world wars. But they're known throughout the world most of all for the Vespa scooter, uh, really the scooter that defined the scooter as a type of light mobility vector. Um, And like many companies that have a deep have deep roots in the, in the mobility and transportation space. Uh, they have really been trying to think about what 21st century mobility looks like. And Piaggio Fessford was born out of this desire to be close to, closer to some of the innovation scenes in the United States were based in Boston, but you know, the company was also looking at the West coast. Um, but, um, uh, essentially, uh, the focus of Piaggio Fast Forward is really to answer that question of what 21st century mobility might look like. And my co-founder and I, uh, he, he's Greg Lynn, the architect, uh, we both uh, felt early on in the development of the uh, the company as well as the, uh, the sort of genesis of Gita itself as a product that while Much of the conversation about the present and future mobility, about 21st century mobility had been centered on automobiles, that the automobile automobile was really not the vehicle that was driving transformation in the context of cities today and tomorrow. Uh, First of all, there is a long-term trend towards walking, towards the pedestrianization of central city areas. And we see this all over the world, but in particular, we're seeing it um, being led in cities like Paris where the 15-minute city as a concept has been officially adopted as part of the, the urban urban planning uh, scheme for the next decades, or in cities like Barcelona, where the concept of the superblock reintegrates existing blocks, closes off much of the street grid to cars, and opens the, mm-hmm. that those spaces up to forms of light mobility. And, of course, walking is at the base of that pyramid, but alongside it and accompanying it and complementing it are... Those micromobility vehicles that have exploded over the course of the last decade, like uh, you know, kick, electric kick scooters, for example, or, and of course yep. bicycles themselves, e-bikes in particular. So Jita is a vehicle that inserts itself into that new ecosystem, which is an ecosystem where micromobility is at the base of the pyramid, and we increasingly see. Automobiles relegated to more and more peripheral roles, uh, less being granted less and less access to center cities. So uh, that's the overall uh, philosophy behind Jeta. Uh, Jeta um, was launched on the U.S. market uh, at the end of 2019. Um, it is a vehicle that is developed for the consumer market, as although we also run pilots with the different. Um, Uh, B2B type uh, clients uh, from airports to uh, delivery services, but pretty much you name it. Um, And we're in the process of developing a whole family of vehicles that support pedestrianism as a mobility choice.
1: I love how you decouple the the trunk from the car, you know. (laughs) It it is sort of that, yeah. It is so cool. Um, We recently interviewed a a British economist named Narina Hertz, who has written a book called The Lonely Century. One of the things she was talking to me about was that her own students, the, uh, those infamous digital natives, have an incredibly difficult time interacting offline. And she actually mentioned that one of the big Ivy League schools here in the States actually runs a class on how to read a face. And I was curious for you as a veteran teacher, does this, does this sound familiar? Do you see the students of today having a more difficult time? Uh, and do you think that it's the Internet culture that's hobbling their social skills?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a complex question. I think there's no qu- there's no question that the the way in which devices have come to mediate so many aspects of our personality and our interaction with the world. Um, can certainly give rise to to new psychopathologies, <laughs> um, and uh, a friend of mine likes to say that the you know the cell phone is the new cigarette. You know, the, just like people <laughs> would chain smoke out of just social nervousness, now it's staring at your screen, checking your messages, you know, uh, t- checking your chats, and so forth. And there's certainly sure. some tr- there's certainly some truth to that. Um, but I I continue to believe that. Um, uh, that that, despite some of these edge phenomena, that nonetheless there, there there is a kind of deep, multisensorial longing that we all share, and capability as well, and intelligence that we all share, uh, irrespective of what generation we belong to, and um, that's certainly the philosophy that um, animates a vehicle like Jeta, which is a hands-free vehicle that does not require you to joystick to do anything on your phone. In fact, you don't even have to have a smartphone with you. All you need to do to drive a Jita is to, to walk. And the vehicle is an intelligent vehicle, an internet of things device that does essentially does the rest for you. It's up to you to decide what you want to do with your hands. If you want to text, (laughs) I suppose you could, (laughs) but, um, but, but I, but I do think that this, that the kinds of technologies and devices that are going to transform, uh, the, the, that are going to be essential to people's lives in the present and the future are going to be um, going to weave themselves into these kind of core multisensorial capabilities that we have as humans, not the ones that require a large attention budget on the part of uh, the citizens of the 21st century.
1: Mm. Now, one of the things that I'm really interested to ask you about was is the, uh, the public library. Right. One of the things that I've missed most during the pandemic is the ability to go to the library and I would drive by it. And I remember something Borges once said, which is, I've always imagined that paradise will be a kind of library. And I think, yeah, I wish I could go there. With <laughs> paradise. And I know you th- thought a lot about the library beyond the book. And I was wondering in this past year, has the pandemic added n- many new volumes to your thinking here about sort of what libraries can and should do?
2: it's it's reinforced my conviction that we need more than ever physical spaces where uh, knowledge sharing uh, discovery the sort of social embodied dimensions of learning are uh, are featured and uh, and the you know the library is that space uh, whether it's a library where you know, one quarter of the information, so to speak, is in the form of bound volumes and the rest is online, or whether the mm-hmm. library is like the Beinecke Library, a kind of memory house filled with centuries and centuries of paper and even parchment editions. Um, I think in the information society, uh, libraries have become even more essential than they were in the print society that preceded it. That said, who is the librarian? What kinds of services does it provide? What kinds of needs does this institution need to meet? Those have changed and they have always changed over the course of centuries. Uh, and, uh, and so um, I do think that the pandemic has um, um, well, it's, it's, it's certainly denied us that kind of space access to that kind of shared learning and knowledge space. Uh, but my expectation is it will come back and flourish uh, all the same. And uh, the real challenge, in my view, is to reimagine what we understand by the concept of the library to. Um, respect some of those traditional missions, long-term conservation of knowledge, uh, uh, education, and so forth, but to, to interpret those, uh, those aspects of the library's identity for the, the present and for the future, um, not just looking back at a kind of book-centric or storage-centric model like the one we inherited from the late 19th century.
1: Cool. Now one final question, and let's talk for 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 a minute or two here about what we're doing here, which is the public having a public dialogue. You've written about this kind of conversation. Uh, perhaps it pre- appears too unprofessional, too tainted by the literary and the ludic, the matter of fact and the improvisational, to be taken seriously as a form of scholarship. Yet sometimes the very friction to which sustained conversation give rise can prove generative, allowing insights that might have ended up buried in a single voice argument to crystallize. Do you think that the pandemic, by forcing absolutely everyone, including your colleagues in the academy, to engage in digital dialogue might have changed some professional opinions here? If so, can you imagine a kind of flowering of the Deep, true, uh, booberian conversation that you're talking about and suggesting here, because because I hope and think so, but I would love to hear what you have to say on the topic.
2: Yeah, I, I love this this question, Ken, and uh, and I I am um, persuaded, um, and this persuasion I think has been uh, nourished a bit by the pandemic that um, we are seeing uh, again, as I I hinted at um, earlier in the conversation. A kind of revitalization of uh, a, maybe it's just a pressure or a sense of need for even domain experts to speak to broader audiences. Um, you know, we, we're, we're, we're whatever your research domain is or your domain of specialization, if you're on the academy side, or, you know, in the case of areas of industry or forms of, you know, um, development and in the innovation economy. Uh, the pressure to communicate is uh, really has has come with this a uh, kind of accelerated um, and expanding you know ecosystem that the web has opened up, uh, where everything is to a significant degree visible at a pace. And with a kind of frequency, a periodicity that's different from that of the world that preceded it, mm-hmm. um, and I think that has created a new new models of the public intellectual. To put one, just attach one label to to that sort of figure who now communicates more regularly or who feels inclined to, to speak to a broader audience, and um, I think the the question of reimagining our audiences. And thinking about those emergent audiences is really one of the great opportunities that the web as a public place, as main square, has opened up. And I can just give one concrete example from my own practice. You know, I I spent a a fair amount of time going around lecturing uh, in Europe, in Italy in particular. And, you know, typically... One will speak in front of a group of maybe 30, 40, maybe 50 people at most. Um, I gave a lecture for the U.S. Embassy on the future of museums at the beginning of the pandemic, and I had 250 people online. And they were wow. much more interesting people than I would ever have had, um, however wonderful they might be in a face-to-face lecture, in part because of they were connecting from all parts of the world and connecting from institutions that would not necessarily have known about an event like this. So um, I do think that something is shifting there and I see it as a great opportunity. And I think it's an opportunity that in particular, those of us who work in domains that have um, the potential to transform and to contribute to social change and, and, and and progress and uh, uh, and uh, you know we 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 have this opportunity to build audiences that don't exist by uh, not only speaking languages that are accessible to them but making some of what we do visible much earlier, more regularly, along channels that. Are not those just of our the special you know specialty communities that we belong to, and I find that an exciting opportunity, particularly if we take seriously the sort of design and communications challenges that are entailed. That we don't again just drop content into new containers and leave it unchanged. I think the the real challenge is to understand how that multi-channel world of communications can add value without giving up uh, rigor, focus, depth of knowledge. Uh, I don't think it's an either-or proposition. It's an and-or proposition.
0: This has been The Resonance Test, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspectives, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to our guest, Jeff Schnapp, for a great conversation with producer Ken Gordon. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Allison Coden. Until the next one, keep learning.